we're glad you're here. Uh, welcome to The Grove. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Rick Matoya, Pastor The Grove, and, and we're in a series, part three. Before we jump into that, I just want to say welcome to all those listening to online to our podcast or watching my Facebook Live. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, we believe it's going to be a good day today for, for us today. And, and thank you for coming to, to service today. Hope you have uh, some good plans, some good grilling, some burgers, hot dogs, uh, something, something, whatever you enjoy. Um, I, I'm not sure if there's any salad lovers out there, guys, but if you love salads, enjoy a good salad, all right? Uh, but I'm pretty sure we'll be grilling. Uh, I'm looking for some steaks. Uh, we've got some steaks on sale at the store, mm, New York Strip. You know, it's pretty awesome. All right. Anyways, enough of that. Um, we're in week three of a series called 412. Taking this series from Hebrews 412, which says that the Bible is alive and active. Uh, there's something about the book, about, about the Bible that, that God has given us that, that does something in our lives. It's alive. It's a living book document. So we've talked about that. So we're in part three. Uh, I just want to do a little bit of review, and then we're going to jump into what I want to talk about today. Uh, week one, we said this, that if you build your life, Jesus promised us, if you build your life upon his teachings, then you will survive. And we've talked about how if you do these things throughout the scriptures over and over, if you do these things, you can expect these results. And those are good results in some cases, and in some cases they're bad results. And throughout scriptures, when you read and you pay attention, you begin to realize that God is trying to help us to establish our lives in such a way that we could succeed. And my challenge was this, build your life upon God's word. Like learn the promises, learn the principles that, that, make, the, that make life work, because they're all in the Bible, and then begin to apply them so you can succeed in all areas of your life. And I asked everybody if they want to succeed, a lot of hands went up, said, yeah, I want success. I want to prosper in relationships and in finances and in business and in education. And, and there's a lot of promises out scripture that help us to do that. So first week, I, we challenged to build your life upon God's word. Just, just trust that it works and go for it. Last week, we talked about understanding the Bible. I told some really great jokes about math, right? Anybody with me? All right, maybe they weren't so great because uh, math jokes aren't that funny to me. Um, but I told these jokes to make a point, and uh, somebody told me, Eric, keep your day job because uh, they weren't that funny. And I was kind of bummed because, you know, that would be awesome. That'd be awesome to be a stand-up comedian. I don't think I have what it takes, but um, I was kind of like, yeah, I need to work on, on some jokes then, I guess. Math jokes just don't cut it. Uh, but there was a point. When you don't understand something, especially math, it's not going to make as much sense to you, and you won't get as much out of it. And we said that about the Bible. When you don't understand how the Bible's built, the structure, what, what the purpose is behind it, you won't get a lot out of it. You'll just assume and you'll make assumptions about it and um, you'll read. Here, here's the challenge we have is, is we read through our, our, our eyes right now. And so we read a book, we're thinking, this is how an American that lives in 2017 would read this scripture. And that's true, we do read that. But sometimes we, we fail to neglect or we neglect and, and fail to realize that there's a whole history that's being written there that doesn't just apply to us right now, but is the story being unfolding. And so last week I was really trying to help us understand how the Bible is laid out. And I gave, you, I gave us three, three parts of, of how to understand the Bible. Uh, I kind of broke down the Old Testament, New Testament, how it's structured with, with categories. And then so I said the plot. If you understand the plot of the Bible, the whole story is a redemption story. It's going from when, when God created something and it got broken, he's trying to redeem it and put it back to its original intent. I gave you this mirror image, which is a pretty fantastic picture. If you didn't take one, uh, go watch and you can get online and catch it, capture it later. Uh, but it just gives you a picture of the Bible. It's a mirror image, how things start, how they climax, and how they're going to end. Um, we said the subject of the whole story is Jesus, the whole Bible, that he's the subject. Uh, it's pointing to him. And then the verb, we said the action behind the Bible is, is generosity in giving. So last week, when you understand how it's structured, how it lays out, it's a little easier to read the book because then you begin to take it in, in, in peace as you begin to understand how it fits in, helps you to understand the Bible more. Because that's our heart. Our heart for this series is to get you excited about saying, I can actually take something from the Bible and apply it to my life. It doesn't have to be complicated. It's not harder than I sometimes make it. And that's my, my, my goal for today or my, this series. 
Today, week three, I want to talk about this. You know, at this point, we might get some pushback and say, okay, you're talking about the Bible is so important, but can the Bible be trusted? Like, is the Bible reliable? Is it a good source? You know, it's, it's an ancient book. It's been around for a long time. Uh, can, it be, can it be trusted? Um, and there would be some scholars who would say, no, it can't be trusted. You know, that after so many years of different translations, there's contradictions. Uh, different people say different things about the Bible, um, especially ma- many that don't even believe. They'll, they'll push and say archaeology, all these different things that you can just you can disprove the Bible. So my, my job today is to try to build the case to say it can be trusted. And this is why I believe before I do that, I just want you to understand something. All right. Um, Christianity doesn't exist because of the Bible. If you took away the Bible, being a Christ follower would continue on. Um, and this is why it's so important to get into the Bible, because you want to know what God's, how, how God has set things up to work. And if the Bible was restricted and you couldn't read it, you'd still be able to function and live as a Christian, because you don't need the Bible to be a Christian. You need Jesus' teachings. You need to, you need to follow his, his ways. And so Christianity doesn't exist because of the Bible. Rather, the Bible exists because of Christians who gave their lives so we could have the Bible. This is why... The Bible exists because there were people along in history that were willing to say, whatever it takes to make sure people get this message, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help them do that. And so we have the Bible because somebody in our past has given their life, literally their life, so that we can have the book that we have today. And so my challenge today is saying, just don't, don't, don't forget that. It's, it's, it's big. So the question I want to answer today is, what evidence do we have that the gospel writers were telling the truth? And here's the thing, we're going to kind of focus mainly on the, on the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, Luke wrote Luke in Acts, the physician Luke, he was Paul's physician. He wrote the, the gospel of Luke, and he also wrote the Acts of the Church. And so we're going to talk about real, mainly those five books, but we're going to show that even from those, it'll, it'll, it kind of bleeds into the rest of the Bible. There's, there's other ways to talk about scriptures uh, from, from historical perspectives, scientific perspectives. There's a lot of angles. But today I just want to jump in and just give you a few perspectives about how how the Bible, um, we know the, the writers are telling the truth, and, this, and I'm going to cut, lay out that case for you guys. And so here's the tension we're going to try to solve. Can it be trusted? Because if it can't, the truth is, if we can't trust the Bible, all right, if we can't trust this book and the gospel, the gospel is what they wrote, really then we're just wasting our time here today. It doesn't really matter. If this can't be trusted, if it's not reliable and trustworthy, um, then we should just go home and do something else. But if it is the word of God, then we really need to, to talk and say, we need to examine and figure out if this really is what God has given us, how can we apply this and do, do this with our lives, help our lives to become better. Um, so some, some, some claim it's a myth. Uh, some claim it's a fairy tale made up. Uh, some people claim that it contradicts itself, that it's been proven to be wrong uh, throughout the years. Um, here, and here's the thing. A lot of people, they'll say, which we're going to talk about. Um, well, we'll get there in a second. Um, Here's the thing when people say it contradicts or that it's not reliable, it's not credible. I, I believe a lot of them are actually going off outdated ideas, outdated uh, data or, or studies. Uh, I'll give you an example. In 1861, the French Academy of Science, they came up with 51 incontrovertible scientific facts that prove the Bible wrong. So they said in 1861, here's 51 facts that show the Bible is actually wrong because of science. And since 1861, all 51 of those has actually been true, proved wrong. That the Bible is actually correct in all the things that they said were wrong. And so science is on the Bible side. It just, it'll unfold. And here's the thing about, about truth. You don't ever have to fear truth. You, you have to be worried about lies. Always worry about lies because eventually they'll, they'll they secret seep. The truth is revealed. But when it comes to truth, the truth is the truth. 
And whenever you're telling the truth, you don't have to worry about that, which we'll talk about. So some people that say the Bible can't be trusted, I believe they're going off of old data, old information. Uh, they're stuck maybe in some teaching that actually has been um, proved right. For example, uh, there was one city in, in the Old Testament, uh, a, a, a people group called the Hittites. And they couldn't discover it. And for a long time, they said, see, it proves the Bible's wrong. And talk about these Hittites was a really, you know, part, big part of the Old Testament story. They, we can't even find them. And then in the early 1900s, they discovered and excavated uh, uh, the place that proved that the Hittites, where they lived, and that they were a culture, and they were, were a people that were in history. Um, so little things like that, just time is always doing it. In, in the 40s and 50s, 1940 and 50s, uh, they found these caves that had these scrolls that were hidden um, they begin to um, take these scrolls out and look through them. Uh, one of the main ones that, that was really intact, that they've done really good re- reading, was the, 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 the prophet Isaiah. And uh, what they wrote is, is, is very identical to what we have today for Isaiah. It's just it, extraordinary. So time is always proving over and over. It, 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 time doesn't disprove the Bible. It actually gives us more evidence to believe in the Bible. Uh, but today I want to just focus on seven categories of why you can trust why I believe you can trust New Testament writers. So if you're here today, maybe you're questioning Christianity, you're questioning God, you're questioning life. Um, I hope that as I talk about these things, maybe, maybe you'll begin to just say, all right, I'll be open to hear of why, why somebody would believe this is true. All right, son of God coming down, you know, a virgin birth, those miracles, all these stuff, it just doesn't make sense. Why would God come in the human form? That just doesn't make sense. Uh, throughout scriptures, you know, throughout, throughout the Bible, if, if, you, if you read the story, you begin to realize God is trying to help us get back to original intent, what he created for us in the first place. And these writers um, who experienced this, uh, they, they gave us some examples. So here's the seven categories I'm going to talk about for the next few minutes. Early testimony, eyewitness testimony, elaborate testimony, embarrassing testimony, excruciating testimony, expected testimony, and extra biblical testimony. I'm going to give these seven categories. One by itself is not that all impressive, but when you begin to compile all of these and put them together... And here's the thing, when it comes to learning about, about the Bible, about history, about archaeology, um, there's tons of great writers out there. Uh, Frank Turek, uh, one, uh, where I got a lot of this information as I studied for this, did a great job breaking it down. Uh, Josh McDowell has a couple books that are phenomenal. Uh, Andy Stanley did a great job, uh, does a great job talking about this. Rick Warren, um, Chris Hodges, uh, some different books. that are. There, there's a lot of material out there. If you want to read and, and, and learn what people are discovering about these things, it's there. You just got to apply yourself and, and dig it up. And if that's something that you're passionate about, I would say go and do it. But there's some of the research I did, not all my original to me, uh, but just taking and compiling and gathering and saying this is, this is what we have. So the first one, first category, early testimony. Here's one of the pushbacks that people give when it comes to the Bible. And they say it's a myth, it's a fairy tale, and here's why. Because after Jesus died, hundreds of years later, the gospel writers began to write these stories. They began to compile them. And it was just too far separated from really what took place. And so it's easy to insert stuff. And this is why they say that. Because it only takes 70 years for a legend to begin, uh, um, to begin to sound like history. So if it, enough people hear a story and begin to share it, after 70 years, people just begin. In AD 30, Jesus predicted that the temple would be destroyed. It would be completely destroyed. In AD 70, from 66, AD 66 to 70, there was a, a, a war, a Jewish war between Rome and, and Jerusalem, between the Israel, uh, where, where Rome came in, and for four years, they, they, there was a, a war that went on, and then it, it, eventually the whole city was overtaken and destroyed in AD 70. Uh, so for four years, almost five years, uh, there was this huge event that took place, and not a single writer of the New Testament mentions it. When, when such a big event like that took place, why would not any of them 
have mentioned it and said, this is what, this is what happened, this is what took place. Well, this is what we believe because it hadn't happened yet when they wrote the books. So when it comes to early testimony, this is just within 30 years, 35 years of, of their writings after Jesus dies on the cross. So somewhere from 15, 10 to 15 to 35 years, these books in the New Testament are being written. That means they were really, it was really close to the time of when, when these things unfolded. And I'll show you an example of this. Um, go to the next one for me. Uh, one, another, so Luke is recording in Acts the stories of, of, um, of Paul and Peter, some of the leaders in the church. He's telling these stories. Well, in Acts, he talks about two people that gave their lives. Stephen, who was one of the first martyrs of the church, gave his life for the gospel to, to, to follow Christ. And then James, the brother of John, also gave his life. And he records these two martyrdoms of these two saints, of these two, two believers. Um, but he doesn't record Peter's death and, and Paul's death. So Nero had Paul executed probably AD 60 or so around there. Um, and then one of the leaders in the church, James, the brother of Jesus, who didn't believe in Jesus when Jesus was on the earth, but after James encounters the risen Savior and realizes, oh, wow, my brother really was telling the truth. He has a change of heart. He becomes one of the leaders for the church. I think it's a really strong case for the gospel because uh, you know what it takes to convince any family members about something as crazy as being the son of God, right? It would take a lot. And so a, a lot as in the resurrection of he died, he was in the grave, and now he's alive talking to me. That's a lot. And so... Um, so Peter, so, so James is killed in AD 62. We have historical documents of this, of the Sanhedrin having him executed in uh, AD 62. And because of that, um, they don't mention these. That means they might, when they were writing these stories, why wouldn't Luke include two of the main characters that died in his story? Because it hadn't happened yet, which means it's pre-60, maybe AD 55, uh, which would just be 20-some years after. After the, after the death of Christ. Um, and so when they say it, it was 100 years later, that's just not what we find. The evidence points to actually very sooner than what we thought. And so the, it's pointing to that. Um, I love technology, but I'm always prepared just in case. I don't make sure I don't miss anything here. Um, so let's go to First Corinthians um, 15, 3 through 8. So Nero had Paul killed in, in the 60s, and so um, AD 60, about that time, is when Paul was executed from Nero, the emperor. We, we understand who Nero was, but through history, uh, he, was, he was killed. So it's safe to say that Paul wrote all his books before he died, right? That would be a safe thing to say. So prior before the 60s, where he wrote AD 60, is where he wrote all of his epistles to the churches. Um, one of the things that he records in, in his books, and they call it the creed, one of the creeds that, that we use as, as Christians, um, it predates in AD 40. And even liberal scholars will, will say this, that, that this creed predates AD 40 because of the, the documents that we have that record this creed from other people that Paul said, uh, um, that shared it from Paul. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. Um, I passed on to you what was most important and what has also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins. Here's the creed. Christ died for our sins. Just as the scripture said, he was buried and then raised from the dead on the third day, just as scriptures, as the scripture said. Um, and then he goes on and he says, he, he begins to witness, um, identify people. Um, and this is what he says. Uh, he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. Uh, after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Most of them, get this, most of them are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. 
And then he has this Paul saying then he had an experience where he meets Jesus and um, and and gets this call to go and take the gospel. So Paul was against Christianity. He was trying to stamp out Christianity, trying to kill the Christians. He became one of the strongest proponents to say, um, "I'm going to take the gospel." And he, and and here's the thing about about Paul: he suffers. And, and he's persecuted, eventually gives his life for the gospel. And as I read his stories, it's not like this guy was like living a, like so disappointed with his life. He was excited that he was able to give his life for a greater cause and for the, and for the gospel. But notice that he, he's, he, he names 14 people and then 500. What, what is this all about? And they're still alive. So if they're still alive, that means it was in the lifetime of these people that witnessed Jesus die on the cross and then come back to life and then show up. So what is he saying here? He said, you want to check out, go, go ask these eyewitnesses. Go check out and see what they've said. And, and it, it's a way of saying, fact check me. Go check these people. You know, um, go, go, make, go see that what I'm talking about is real. Um, so we have, if you can get my, well, it's fine. You don't have to worry about my, my monitor. Um, so we have early testimony. So we have early testimony, and then we have eyewitness testimony. Um, eyewitness testimony would be... Um, People that actually saw and experienced what took place, and then they write about it. Uh, Roman historian Colin Hemer, uh, he verified through archaeology and other sources uh, that Luke records 84, all right, 84 historical and eyewitness details uh, from Acts 13 to Acts 28. So in 16 chapters, um, this, this, this historian, Roman historian, he says that these last 16 chapters of, of Acts, that Luke records 84 historical and eyewitness details. What I mean by that? Details that you would only know if you actually were there. So like names of politicians, local slang, um, what's some other ones? The depths, water depths, weather patterns, uh, topographical locations, uh, things like that that would, would show that you had to be there to know these things. You wouldn't just learn that from somebody else because they're details that you would have to actually see and, and experience. And this is what he says, that he gets all of the details correct. At, and at the same time, claiming these miracles that Paul did, which people pushed against, say, well, miracles don't, don't, aren't, aren't real. Luke is writing, and here's the thing about the, the writers. They're not writing as in a story. They're trying to sell you a story. They're writing from a historical perspective. They're trying to pass on the details. So in Luke 3, 1 through 2, he says it like this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Tiberius Caesar, we know Tiberius is Caesar through history, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iteria, and Trachonitis and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So if you're a writer, does this sound like he's making up something? No, it's, it's, it's a historian's way of saying, fact, check me. Go, go look at history. Go, go check all of these out. And we know from, from history and from documents that all of these leaders that he names were in these positions in AD 29. Like he got them right. Over and over, the details that Luke is sharing, he's giving a, a historical perspective about why we can, why we can follow and why we can trust, trust the Bible, why we, why we can trust God's story. Um, in fact, um, Sir William Ramsey, he's a, a famed archaeologist. He began to do research on Luke's claims, really as a skeptic and really to discredit and, and prove that Luke was wrong. And then after 20 years of spending time on location at these sites, he actually changed his mind. And this is what he said about Luke. Um, you may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians, and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. So 
he says this, that Luke should be included with other great historians of our time, of, of the past. He notes that Luke referenced 32 countries. This is pretty astounding. 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands without making a single mistake. So, so Luke is giving a lot of details out here, and he doesn't make a single mistake on them. And he did all this without maps that we have, without charts that we have, and without GPS, which is pretty amazing. So he's giving all these details, and they go and they, they, they study them and realize, okay, this is pretty, pretty impressive. So we have early testimony, eyewitness testimony. I want to talk about elaborate testimony. Elaborate testimony means this, that there is something greater that's going on than just with these writers. So yeah, you can probably get a few people together and say, hey, let's make up this story. Let's make up all these details so we can trick everybody, right? And you get a few people to write these stories. That would work. But what they didn't have control over was the other historians that were writing about these same events. And so people will say, see the Bible, there's a story here, and, and, and Matthew mentions this one detail, but it's not anywhere else, and it doesn't make sense. But then if you get information from another gospel writer, they, there's this interconnecting story that's being told that you can say, okay, he was telling this detail. The other gospel writer is giving more details here. And then what they find is historians that were also watching, they begin to give the same details about the same things that are happening. It's pretty, pretty amazing. And so elaborate testimony is where you can't, so the writers, they can, they can contrive and make up what they're writing, but they can't control what other historians are going to say. And when other historians begin to say the same things they're saying, everybody gets to say, oh, wait, maybe these guys were telling the truth, and they're, they're, there's interconnecting there. Um, Bethsaida, for example, Bethsaida, John, Jesus talks about uh, this city, and he gives them a, a strong rebuke for not believing because Jesus did a miracle. Uh, well, they just discovered in 1987 the ruins of Bethsaida. It was destroyed. They discovered it. Um, Josephus, one of the historians, wrote about it. They call these undesigned uh, coincidences. Undesigned co- coincidences where these stories interlock at points that nobody could fabricate or make up because you can't control those things when people are writing after the fact. So Luke is saying, fact check me. So early testimony, eyewitness testimony, elaborate testimony, and, and there's more that goes on with that. Um, but I'm just going to kind of just go move, move forward with this. Uh, embarrassing testimony. One of the things that, that, and this is throughout the whole Bible, not just the New Testament, but especially the New Testament. The writers leave in embarrassing things about themselves, the people that are writing it, and, and embarrassing details that someone would say even about Jesus in some cases, because the religious people didn't believe in Jesus. And so they would say things about their leader. Well, if you're making up a story, why would you, why would you give any kind of idea that Jesus was weak or that people didn't believe in him? You would, you would, you would make sure you took all of those things out so you wouldn't bring up any kind of doubts. But they left all those things in as if they were saying, we have nothing to hide. I'll give you one example of that. Probably one of the strongest for, for embarrassing testimony is when it comes to, to the story of, of the gospel, um, all the guys run away because they're afraid. And who are the ones that show up to the tomb? Who are the ones that, that continue the story? The women. And in the Gospels, they leave the women as the key, some key eyewitnesses to the whole story. Well, in our day, you know, that, that's great. I, I love women. You guys have great, we, we value. Your voice is strong. In their day, it didn't matter. You can testify in the court of law. Your voice didn't matter if you're a woman. So why would you leave testimony of women who nobody wants to listen to in that time um, as key witnesses? It just doesn't make sense unless you're not trying to hide something. It's actually the truth. Um, and not just that, if you were a guy writing a story, right, especially in that time, um, where, where wouldn't you make, why would you make the women the hero of this part of the story, not the men? 
Like if a guy was riding, he'd be like, yeah, you know, all those women, they were squeamish. They took off. And us guys, we stood our ground against the Romans. We didn't even, we didn't even back down. But that's not what they wrote. They said all of us except one took off running for our lives. And then the leader of, the, of all of them, Peter, who Jesus said, you're going to lead this thing uh, at the time, he denies that he even knows Jesus to a teenage girl. Like he's not even, he's not even strong enough to say, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a disciple, so what? A teenage girl says, hey, aren't you a disciple? And he's like, no. And then he cusses her out, the Bible says. He, like, he curses and says, I'm not one of those, you know, blanky, blank, blank, blank disciples. I don't know what he said. But he said something that says he curses. And he, and he denies it to even a teenage girl. Why? Because he was afraid. Why leave embarrassing things in there if it's a, if it's a fake story? Um, and throughout scriptures, over and over, God leaves in embarrassing things. He doesn't take them out. He doesn't remove them. Why? Because the truth is the truth. And you let it. You just let it tell the story that it tells, which is very credible because God's not trying to change things and move things. So you have embarrassing testimony. And then we have excruciating testimony. We have early testimony, our witness, elaborate, embarrassing. We have excruciating testimony. We know from history that 11 of the 12 apostles gave their life willingly for the cause of Christ. And when I say gave their life, it was taken from them, and some in horrible ways. Some were boiled, boiled alive in water. Some were cut in half. Some were hung on a cross upside down. We get the word excruciating from crucifixion, the word, the same word, which means hanging on a cross. The word excruciating comes from crucifixion. Um, so when we talk about excruciating, that's, that's, that's the whole idea. The Romans invented this horrible way to die. Some of them died on crosses, like Jesus. Peter didn't think he was, he was worthy to die the same way, so he has to be hung upside down. He died. Some were, their, their heads were cut off. Um, some were burned alive. Uh, some were stoned with rocks. Uh, not the other kind of stone, right? They were stoned with rocks. Um, and, and they gave their lives in, in horrible, horrible ways. So when I come to excruciating testimony, why would anybody willingly give their life for a lie? And why would anybody willingly let their family die for a lie? We know that. Like, nobody lies to make ourselves better. No, nobody, nobody lies to, um, to, to, to give ourselves to something good. We lie to keep ourselves from something. And so as they, were, as they were willing to give their life for something, they're saying, I believe in this so much that I will give everything I have for the cause of Christ. Uh, see, they, they say that there's three reasons people will commit crimes or event, um, collaborate for um, um, some kind of uh, scheme. And it's, it's these three things. It's, it's sex, it's money, or it's power. And all the apostles, they didn't have any of these to gain. None of these were, were, were there for their taking. None of them were going to get more power, more fame, or more sex. Um, that wasn't there for their taking. In fact, they were going to get the opposite of it. They were going to get beatings and, and jails and, and, and deaths. Um, there was no reason for them to go against the religious authorities of their day to say, no, our Messiah came and he came to show us a better way because they got excommunicated. Uh, they got beaten. They got imprisoned. Uh, they, they, would, they, they gained the opposite of what anybody would get by making up a story. Or making some kind of, uh, fabricating some kind of lie. Um, so they give their lives willingly. Um, so we have excruciating testimony. And then we have expected testimony. Uh, expected testimony is uh, the prophecies that were, were spoken out in the Old Testament uh, that Jesus fulfilled. Um, and it's pretty amazing. If you read this, there's, there's one, one guy, they just came out in the movie a while back, The Case for Christ. Uh, he was an atheist. He wanted to prove that his wife was crazy because she, she became a Christian. And he said, I'm going to prove to you that it's wrong. And for, for a year and a half, two years, he studied to try to prove Christianity wrong. And as he began to uncover the evidence as a journalist, he began to realize all of the evidence was pointing to the fact that there was a man named Jesus. He gave his life, all these things. And he came to a point where he said, I cannot deny the existence. And one of those things that really changed my heart was prophecy. 
Uh, like ma- mathematicians, people have studied, they say just to fulfill eight prophecies would be, would be the same, um, I think it's like 10 to the, to the 107th power, something like that. It would be equivalent to getting uh, silver dollars and marking one of them, like a black one, and the rest silver, going to the state of Texas, filling it up two feet deep, and then having somebody on the plane just fly over and at some point say, all right, let's go down there and pick up that coin. And that person going down and picking it out. That's just to fulfill eight of the prophecies that they, they picked out from the Old Testament. That's the likelihood that somebody, one person, would be able to fulfill eight prophecies from the Old Testament. And Jesus fulfilled not just eight, but over 300 prophecies. And the likelihood of that, the numbers are they're astronomical. It's crazy of how to be able to even explain that. When he began to discover this, he began to realize, wow, like the likelihood of this being fake and not and just being a story, it, it's 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 the, the numbers are against that. Um, so expect a testimony. Isaiah 53 is a great example. Just add one of the prophecies. Go read it. As you read this story, you begin to see they call it the suffering Messiah. Jesus fulfilled prophecy after prophecy just in this one chapter. And as you read it, you'll begin to see like, wow, this really sounds like the death of Jesus. It sounds like his life. It sounds like some of the things that he experienced as he went through it. Um, so one of the oldest. And then, and then the Dead Sea Scrolls they found in the 1940s and 50s, and they're still discovering even some more has the book of Isaiah, which is one of the main major prophets of the Old Testament. Um, so we have, we have expected testimony. So early eyewitness, elaborate, embarrassing. And the last one is extra biblical testimony. Um, there was, there's 42 sources within 150 years of Jesus' life that talks about Jesus as a person and talks about these things. And here's the thing about these 42 sources. Ten of them are not Christian. So like they have nothing to gain by talking about Jesus because they, they're not, it's not a Christian source. So out of the 42, 10 of them are not Christians. Um, Emperor Tiberius, who we all would say was the, one of the emperors of Rome, right? He only has 10 sources that cite him as, as, as emperor. So we believe out of 10 sources there was an emperor, but yet Jesus has four times as many sources saying there was Jesus. And some people still say he doesn't exist. It's crazy. So extra biblical testimony, people that don't... Um, People say they, they, some critics will even say the Bible contradicts itself. Um, but the thing is, it, it, it's not contradiction, it's differences. In the same way that eyewitnesses would see the event with, with differences, some of the biblical writers, like one talks about how many angels were at the tomb, other one says who showed up first. There, there's variances and differences, but you would expect that out of different eyewitnesses. Um, it's like the Titanic. When they asked the witnesses of the Titanic what happened, Everybody had a different example. Of, it was an explosion. The boat broke in half. All these different things took place. So there was all difference in what they experienced, but there was one thing that they all, they all agreed on. The boat sank. Like, yeah, the boat sank. We can't argue that. So in the gospel writers, there's not might be slight differences. And here's the thing about the Bible I love. If you have a study Bible, there'll be cliff notes on, on every, every time there is one of those variances or, or differences. And it tells you at the bottom, one manuscript says this, another manuscript says this, but the Bible is nothing to hide. It's talking about these differences in translation. It's talking about the differences from, from, from interpretation. But none of those differences have anything to do with doctrine, just, just different events that took place, nothing that, that, that would change or shake our faith at all to make us, make us concerned. So there are, there are those. There's differences, but they're, they're differences. They're not contradictions. Um, they all agree on that same, same one. So here's my challenge as we wrap up today. This is my challenge. We, we need to treat the Bible as it really is. Uh, this whole series, my hope is this, that you would see that it's not just a book. It's not just a book for history, just a history lesson. Um, it's a gift that God's given us. It, it's, the, it's the book that will read you as you read it. And that's my goal for this series, that you would be able to say, all right, God, I want, I want to learn from you. I want to take something that you have for me. It's a gift. And what I mean by gift, 
is people throughout history have given their lives so we can have this. Uh, even recently, it's, it's not that pe- people go into countries to take the Bible to help people know the story of God, and they're killed because they, they're caught with the Bible. Uh, it's outlawed in, in many in many countries because they're they're afraid of the, the power that's in it. They're afraid of the story that it, what it'll do and change culture and change people, so they don't have control anymore. It's it's a powerful powerful book. Um, it's it's a gift that God's given us. The disciples all gave their lives so that we can we can have this. Like they believed so much, they're saying, "Whatever you do to me, I'm not going to stop preaching the gospel. I will continue on sharing." The good news that God that God has has for me, and so my, my challenge is this: um, treat it as a gift. When you open it, understand that somebody gave their life so you can have this thing in front of you. One of the first translators, William Tyndale, he didn't think he was right that the, that the church would, would lock up the Bible and chain them to their pulpits, and you can only read them in Latin. And he said, you know, we should have this in the common language. So he began to try to get it. He began to translate it into the common language. They get the time is German. I think he's from Germany. Um, and the religious leaders were so furious that he was trying to make it accessible that they had him killed. And other Christians said, no, this is a worthy cause. And they got on board and they began to translate. So the fact that we even have it in English went against even some of the religious systems back in the day. And somebody gave their life so we can have this. The disciples and other followers that have, have come after them. And my challenge is this. Understand this is a gift that God's given you so you, you can succeed in every area of life. Whatever you find, whatever you face, you, you'll, you'll, if, you, if you take it on. Um, and here's my thing with the Bible. Can it be trusted more than the Bible being trusted? The, the author of it, God, he can be trusted. You know, today is Father's Day. We celebrate Father's Day. And one of the things I want you to know about God is he's, he's, he, the Bible tries to explain that he's a good father that loves us. In fact, one of Jesus' stories that he tells about God is, is as a father who's looking out for a son that was rebellious, uh, that was careless, that didn't care about life. And all the while, the father was waiting for the son to return. And this is what he said. He said, this is how our heavenly father is. He's, he's willing that none of us would perish. None of us would, would lose, but we'd all find life and we'd succeed. God's heart for us is like a good father who's saying, I want the best for you. So if you don't know God's heart as a father, it's for the lost. It's for people that don't know him. And as you read the, as you read the Bible, because it's my challenge, read the Bible, get, get comfortable with it, get familiar with it, take notes, read, get it into your habit, daily habits. As you read this, you'll begin to see that God's heart is for the lost. It's for the lost. It's for those who are searching and looking for life in all the wrong places. It's those who are selfish and saying, I want it on my own, I want it on my own, and then we get to this place and realize my own is all not that, not all that good. Like I need something more. That's not enough. And, and today, the whole thing will build up to this is when throughout scriptures that God gives us, he's saying, I have something better for your life if you'll just trust me. And I can give you every reason intellectually why you can believe the Bible, why you should, why you should believe God. But it has to become a, a, a choice that you make from your own heart in your own life to say, I surrender my life to you. Because the truth is, many smart people know all this information I've said, and they still choose to do really dumb things. People that call themselves Christians, people that call themselves followers of Christ. They know this information, but they still willingly choose to do foolish things. And God is saying, that's not the kind of people I want to follow me. Let me help you on this journey. And so today, if you're here, I want to just tell you this, all right? God, as a heavenly father, as a loving father, is looking out the door waiting for you to come back if you're not part of his family. 
Like if some of you might be here today, you, you, maybe you've never been to church, and my, my challenge is say, God is looking for you, waiting for you to come home. Whatever you've done. And here's the thing about Jesus' story. He sets it up that this son did the worst horrible things you could possibly do to a father and the worst choices you could make as a person. And he said, God the father was still looking and waiting for his son to return. It's called the prodigal son. It's a great story. And this is God's heart, that you can't go far enough away from him that he's still not waiting for you to come home. Like you cannot do enough stupid things where God says, you're still welcome my family. And this is a gift that I see that God is saying, don't miss my best in your life. You know, when I, when I first had my, my, when Joaquin, my first son, my heart changed about God once I saw my son and began to interact with him. Because the love I had for this little boy was so overwhelming. And the whole time I was thinking, wow, if I feel this way, how does God feel about us? And I promise you, as a good father, he's saying, I want the best for you. But he doesn't push himself on us. And so today, this is what I want to leave you with. If you're here today, um, maybe I talked a lot about information and, you know, in some ways it's kind of like, all right, that's great. Um, but here's what I want, want you to know, uh, that God loves you and he has a good plans for your life. He doesn't want you to miss, he doesn't want you to miss his plans for your life because you choose your own way or because, um, because of information or because of whatever. He wants you to choose him and say, I'm going to just trust you with my life. Just like the disciples they wrote about it, not because they were trying to tell a story, but because they had an encounter with a living God that changed everything in their life. And they said, I have to tell other people about this. And they gave their lives for that. Do me a favor. Would you bow your, your heads and close your eyes today as we wrap up service? Not believing in God is not because of lack of information or evidence. It's because of a choice that we make. And today, if you're here, um, and that's my prayer, that you would come back to God. That you would invite him and say, I need you in my life. And the disciples, they willingly gave their life. And God is saying, I'm looking for people who will also share their life with others to help bring the kingdom of God to the world. And if you're here today and you want to make that decision, just like the disciples did at some point, God, I believe you died on that cross for me. I believe you have a better plan for my life. And today would be the day that you would say that. Would you do me a favor and just lift your hand? Let me know you're here. I'll lead you in a prayer from your, where you're at. I won't call you up. Awesome. I see your hands. Awesome. I see your hands. Like a heavenly father, he's saying, welcome home. That's what God would be saying to you. Come home. You've been running for too long. Come home. Anybody else? All right, all you raise your hand. I'm just leading you a simple prayer. It's a declaration that says, the invitation of relationship, saying, God, I, I want you to be my father. I want you to be my God. Forgive me of my, my mess. Forgive me of my sin. And here's the thing. As you pray this, many of us in this room have prayed that, and we celebrate with you today because we've all been there, and at times we all get there. And God today is saying, just come home. Let's pray. Raise your hand. If you're a Christian in this room, would you join us in praying with them? Say this, say, Father God, today I invite you to my life. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my choices that are contrary to yours. Help me to live a life that would please you. I invite you to my life today. I believe you died on that cross for me, Jesus. 
so I can have a new life. Today I want that life. Be my God. Lead me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.